Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 156, Going Through the Motions of Our Old Lives. This week we're discussing season 1, episode 11 of Battlestar Galactica, Colonial Day, and season 6, episode 3 of Buffy, After Life. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. Alrighty. Uh, so, Colonial Day. Mm-hmm. So, I was trying to think, because we're actually only like, uh, what, like two and a half weeks out from the 4th of July here as we're recording mm-hmm. this. So, I I figure like this seems to be like the Battlestar equivalent of that. Yeah. Right? Like, it's... It's yes. I forget exactly how they explain it, but it's like the day they signed, like yeah, like their the colonial articles or whatever. of of their of, of colonization their colonial articles or whatever. Or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, which so. it struck me. Um, oh, and also it's Flag Day, isn't it? It is. That's right. Yeah. There you go. So, um, yeah. so another. Yeah. So yeah, we're kind of in Holiday. the mood for it. Um, it also struck me, I think at some point, they maybe when they say that, that it's only like the 52nd um, Colonial Day, which, I mean, obviously, sure. the, the, the human race in this story is much older than that. It's not like right. that's their entire history. They didn't come up with like space travel and faster than light drives yeah. in 52 years. It's not like the history of, like, obviously, they have history beyond that, but it's it's a relatively new, uh, I guess, unified country of colonies, um, which is interesting. Um, sure. Gives them a, a different perspective on their national history, I think. Whereas, I mean, America is not an old country compared to some other countries, but, you know, we are further removed from our own country's founding than they are. So it mm. feels more like like history in a textbook whereas like for them it's more within living memory you know so it, it you know so when Adama says that he's a patriot and stuff it's like that is maybe in some ways more alive to them than it might feel you know uh two or three hundred yeah. years after your country's founding so well and we don't get uh details right about um you know how the colony was founded or whatever or how the colonies were founded um like we don't know so like for example just thinking you know of of what i'm most familiar with i'm I'm assuming you are as well of like the american Mm -hmm. process of uh you know the united states becoming a country Mm -hmm. you had like you know, you had the colonies, the British colonies, and then you had like Declaration of Independence, but that didn't create a country that was mm-hmm. leaving a country, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So then you end up having like the Articles of Confederation and you have like these Continental Congresses and like this stuff took years. So like right. the actual country didn't begin, right? And well, you know, as we know it now until the Constitution was eventually signed, you know, some, right. some years right. later. So right, like, so this is maybe more like a constitution than a declaration of independence. This is, you know, and maybe these separate colonies, um, 
you know, of Caprica, Sagittarium, whatever else existed independently for however long. Right. And this is, this is our, uh, the date in which they became unified as a single, you know, uh, yeah. united body of, of people. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that seems um, to be kind of what they're getting at. And, and so the other thing is too, I was just thinking about the timing of it though. Uh, cause I forget, is it in the opening crawl of like the first miniseries part where we see, or not crawl, but the opening text mm -hmm. where we see like, it's been what, like 40 years since the Cylons left. And we know Something that like some that. amount of time before that was when the Cylons revolted. Right. So like, is there, you know, you could easily see like the Cylon war having taken a dozen years right. or so. Like, right it doesn't seem like it was a quick war. Mm -hmm. Like both sides were sort of entrenched and, you know, doing their thing um, for quite a while. So like, what part does that play into it right. and all? And I know this is like going way off, like where we we're going to talk about and stuff, but just sort of, you, you definitely have this sense, like, like that almost makes it more, like if it's not just colonial day, but like also has up like that sort of, for us, like the Independence Day, mm. you know, thing of that's that's where, you know, you start actively fighting, mm. you know, mm -hmm. to have your own country. Like if that's for like Adama, you know, right. where he and like Ty and, you know, the other old guys are, you know, the ones where, you know, Colonial Day is, is for them more more about like coming together to fight the Cylons mm -hmm. than simply, you know, being like a, a sort of secular religious holiday. Um, right. Then it just makes more, more sense. Right. Uh, and, and even more than it was already being resisting Cylons and fighting Cylons is baked into your patriotism, you know, like mm -hmm. your, uh, you know, the, the definition of that, you know, coming together politically between these maybe disparate, uh, you know, societies is kind of, you know, linked with them deciding to, you know, or the innate, what enabled them to win, you know, the war. Um, right. Or at least enough that the Cylons sort of flew away and, and didn't, you know, continue with the war. So... Yeah, so there's like a lot of uh, baggage there to, you know, I'm a patriot, um, means something for the war that they're fighting against the Cylons still. Um, sure. And the two are kind of not easily separated. Right. right. Which I think is true for any country. Like, obviously, like, being being anti-patriot it can be seen as treachery at least by some people you know um sure. you know criticism or you know whatever of your own government can sometimes be perceived that way at least by some people but um but like i think even more so when your country was maybe built or founded upon like you know war against another people um 
you know, where it would be hard to see Adama and Ty not thinking of their patriotism as part of their sort of resistance to the Cylons and everything. Yeah, I and I, I would say that, I mean, this is just my conjecture. We certainly have people who are probably more knowledgeable in political science listening to our podcast, <clears throat> Dominic, uh, than, <laughs> than uh, uh, you know, I am or whatever. But um, that seems to be, to me, to be even truer, like, of, like, modern Western democracies, which, mm. uh, uh you know, the, the colonies of BSG, like, seem to be sort of modeled after. Sure. Um, like, like as opposed to where maybe you more strongly identify with your country as, like, an ethnic mm, boundary, mm-hmm. you know, than, um, not to say that, like, in Europe, that doesn't, like, like, those things sort of conflate, maybe sometimes more so than in the U.S., mm-hmm. where, uh, maybe maybe that's a too strong of a statement, even because I'm sure for some in the U.S. that you know there's also ethnic and and stuff associated there. But I feel sure. like maybe that's um, sort of the thing about Western democracy is that you know the ideal anyway, whether it's implemented well or not, um, is that it's it is sort of tied in with with that freedom uh, aspect and and the you know throwing off of sort of the old whatever if it was a you know monarchy or or whatever you had before and that um yeah anyway i feel like i'm fumbling around so maybe we should just move on. <laughs> <laughs> um so having talked for nine minutes about stuff we weren't going to talk about um but which sets up i think some of the political discussion um that is the politics of bsg mm-hmm. let's not talk politics of our own world because no. that's why we watch this stuff to not talk about <laughs> our world um yeah, I wanted to sort of take a couple different tracks here and sort of split out like the political stuff, um, which I, I saw on like the um, Wikipedia page, which is always a good source of background information, um, that this was like meant to be like the quote West Wing episode. Right. right? right. So you get like the political maneuverings or or maybe like if it if it was redone like today, like it would be like the um uh, House of Cards episode sure, <laughs> or something sure. where you have like sort of the manipulations of power sort of behind the scenes going on. Um, yeah. You know, although with less swearing than House of Cards <laughs> um, and other stuff. Uh, but yeah, like you get the, um, so maybe just start in the beginning, you get like, like we're at a point now where, we're sort of beyond, thankfully, we're beyond, like, the weekly resource, you know, uh, peak Tilium, peak water, peak whatever, uh-huh. you know, it is that they're running out of problems, you know. Um, we have our ammo, we have our water, we have our fuel. Yeah. We're good to go for a little while. Yeah. Like, um, we're even to the point where we can actually repair ships now, as opposed to, you know, simply having them destroyed every now and then. Right. Um, which is what happened with cloud nine. Like that's why it's so empty at first, right. Is because it had been undergoing repairs and now it's repaired. So let's open it up with this, like, you know, a small group, a relatively small group of 500 people, Mm -hmm. which is what 1%, I guess, of right of the 50,000. Right. Yeah. Slightly less than 50,000 at this point, but you know, about 1% of the total 
through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and open it up and, and have some sort of political theater um, to show that, oh, we are still a democracy, even though we're, you know, in space and mm-hmm. running from machines that want to kill us. <laughs> um, and and also, like, you have, like, like it, this is the new press, right? The, these these are people who had credentials from the old press, but it's it's new media in that like there isn't you know a newspaper or whatever whatever their equivalent of the internet was right. you know where you had people reporting. So now they're now they're broadcast you know radio broadcast journalists mm-hmm. uh, sort of you know for forging their way. Um, to kind of keep the people informed. And, and it seems like, like for them, like this is a new thing too, right? Cause like, this is a new, it, they, they develop a new show, right? Right, right? And it's, you know, they're coming together, even though maybe they knew each other like professionally before now, like they're collaborating where maybe before they hadn't. And, and so this is sort of a new thing too, but also sort of shows like, again, where we, it feels like we're kind of beyond the danger of, like like what's the hierarchy of needs right like all of that like with the like like you need food right mm-hmm. and then you need like safety and then like once you have those things there, there's some other stuff in there too but like sure. once you have like those things settled like then you can start worrying about like politics and yeah. you know like high, but, higher order you know type stuff i mean um yeah like obviously these discussions are important for their survival going forward and and you know how what kind of society they're going to have and obviously like we know from our own day that you know political discussions are hugely important for our everyday lives but you have to have the sense that like those journalists sitting around having a debate is like this is a luxury you know like compared to things like uh, we blew a hole in our water supply or we don't have enough fuel for mm. more than two jumps. Um, like those things are those very material, you know, survivability crises, like you said, whereas this feels, um, you know, it's, it's nice to have the luxury of debate of sitting around and arguing about who is best fit to lead and why. So it does feel like while vital in their own way, you know, and maybe just as vital in their own way, um, that does feel like a new phase. Um, And like, I feel like it's kind of the first time, not that we're still, not, not that we're really seeing like the regular, you know, civilian life really you know because it's Mm -hmm. it's journalists and it's politicians you know so we're still kind of in the upper crust and you know of whatever the society but like you know I feel like it's getting closer towards looking out into okay how is the rest of the fleet living and what are their concerns um and their concerns are kind of similar to to you know what we've seen but slightly different you know like there's all this stuff about um the different you know uh you know quorum members calling the different politicians for favors so like 
like we need water to live, but also we need more water because for whatever reason, either we use more or we have more people or whatever it is. And so this sense of, okay, you know, representative of Geminon has pressure from her constituents to, you know, go and, you know, lean on the president's office to get more resources or whatever. Like you kind of, you get the sense of that the, I guess unrest or just like what are the, the concerns and the wants and the needs that like the regular people that are kind of cramped in all of these ships are having. Or at least it hints at it. We don't really see it, but. Sure. So. Um, yeah. Um, no, and I, I mean, right. Like we're, you know, we're still following Roslyn and not so much Adama this episode, but you know, the, the Lee and Starbuck and Baltar yeah. and like, these are the cream of the crop, mm -hmm. right? Like, I mean, you know, Roslyn's the president and Baltar's the genius and, mm -hmm. you know, they're sort of archetypal in a way. Right, right. Um, and even sort of the people that we see here are archetypal, right? So we get like the journalists, mm -hmm. right? These are the, the, the archetypal journalists and, and, like they're they're even sort of archetypes of their own point of view like you have the one who's sort of the bombastic like railing against the people in power and then you have the others who are sort of like the more uh i i consider him almost more like the rush limbaugh type right <laughs> yeah. like yeah. and then you have like the ones who are maybe more like mainstream media who like might be a little more willing to like work with the people in power mm -hmm. to you know because it gives them access to the story and mm -hmm. you know they're more of like the press corps you know the white house press corps mm -hmm. type you know whatever so um you know you get kind of like those different types as well but um you do see like you know <laughs> so all right i'm gonna put forward a thought here okay and feel free to tell me i'm way off base <laughs> um because i'm not even sure <laughs> if i feel entirely um you know uh, solid about this thesis but in a way hmm. zarek reminds me of both bernie sanders and trump sure like in their own sure. in their own like like just kind of has aspects of both of them and sure. and i mean like i get that uh again we're talking about types here so maybe it's just that like there are different aspects of those personalities that this type exemplifies, but sure. but the Bernie Sanders part is is the very much the you know the collective. Let's we need operate to like, as a collective, yeah. You know, yeah. operate as a collective. We need to change things. New you know, thinking, we shouldn't be doing yeah. things the old yeah. way. Yeah. We have to you know come together and be you know whatever. Um, but Trump, because <laughs> he's totally like he's pulling out maybe the less favorable members of society like mr big dude you know mm -hmm. and and you get the sense that like he he's just saying things in a way that like is meant to rile people up you know and right. and not like like a lot of what he's doing is getting the base angry mm -hmm. at the people in power mm -hmm. um you know which seems to be a lot like what trump is <laughs> yeah, doing sure. you know like like that sort of thing. So anyway, like, I don't know, like as I was watching it the second time, I'm like, man, there's really 
like there's really some good aspects of like both like if you took it, it's like the old like you know if they had a baby it was like a conan who did that right, like if they right, had right. a baby yeah. like like you know trump and sanders it would be zarek um <laughs> Uh, anyway, so the, the food for thought there. That's funny. No, and I think, like, I I think that works because I think the thing that they, for all that they're opposites in, in so many ways, um, the one thing I think that unites, the, or doesn't unite them, but that they have in common is mm-hmm. this idea of candidates from outside the mainstream political parameters of what we consider you know okay far left far right but still within what's considered normal mainstream american politics you know um which however you feel about hillary or obama or the bushes or you know whatever they're all kind of within this parameters of of mainstream politics whereas Trump and Sanders seem to kind of come from outside that, and that's their appeal to opposite, you know, fan bases. But like, that's it's that unrest with like, okay, the way things have been done, and we need to bring in somebody who's been outside that system and can just break mm-hmm. it wide open and change it. And I feel like that works for Zarek. Like, he's not a politician. I mean, he's been polit. He's an activist. He's politically active but he wasn't you know he's not a career politician he's right was you know i don't even know if he had any sort of work ever um it sounds like he's and, been in prison for most of his adult life so he's right maybe as a young man you know became politically active and you know was you know violently politically active and then has spent the last you know 20 or 30 years of his life, you know, uh, you know, sitting in jail. So he has political cachet for his beliefs, but he's not a career politician in the sense that like, it seems like Roslyn and her, her guy gray are, you know, more of tainted with the, the corruption of the mate where, you know, Whoever it is that's just unhappy with the way things have been done, they're going to be already sort of, you know, smeared with that. Um, Yeah. And so, like, if you're maybe one of, yeah, if you're a Mr. Angry Zarek supporter, there's something exciting about this guy who is talking about just throwing the whole system out the window and starting over and, you know... And he brings the weight of his willingness to do extreme things along with that. So if you sure. think that that's the only way to go about, you know, getting things done, then you have a good sense that he's willing to do that. Yeah. Well, and I'm trying to remember who I would have thought, you know, Zarek would be modeled after, like when I first watched it again, having first watched it like mm-hmm. not 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 these episodes anyway as they aired I, mm-hmm. I didn't start watching it as it was airing till the fourth season but um yeah like maybe like ralph nader or someone like that like would have mm-hmm. been you know um a model but i don't even think he fits as well as like 
either Sanders or Trump does right. now. But I definitely agree. Like it's you know it's the outsideness right. of it. The um, yeah, um, which is funny too because like we know that Roslyn actually hasn't been politically connected for right. most of her right. you know career. She was a teacher. That's what right. everyone complains about her is that she doesn't have experience. Right. But Zarek's able to paint her as the one in power, the one right. who's, you know, represents the old way of doing things. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of funny how, how that works out with Rosalind because she's she's actually less maybe not less experienced than he is, but but like like you said, like Zarek was at least political before. It's just his politics tended to take a violent turn of events and right and he was threw him in jail and he was still in jail writing like political right. tracks and stuff right. so in some ways he actually has more experience than Rosalind, who spent most of her career as a teacher mm -hmm. and then was sort of not coerced but like convinced i guess to take a role right. as part of um president adar's uh administration and then found herself here mm -hmm. um which brings up baltar because he's the one who says like oh i i never looked or was what's the exact quote i forget um about like not looking to be mm. uh uh you know someone who's who's put in and, and like head six says well you know no one is or whatever mm -hmm. something like that but i mean that's also rousing like remember mm -hmm. like she wasn't looking to be president she didn't want to be and whatever and speaking of political connection <laughs> like i feel like i feel like the perception is completely reversed with Baltar mm. because it seems to me like the perception is that he's not politically connected and that's what makes him attractive sure is that he's like mr scientist off doing his thing but we know he was a personal friend of president adar sure like we know that he had connections at the Ministry of Defense or whatever it was called. Like, like he actually is quite politically connected. Mm -hmm. And a lot of his, like, not to say that he's not smart and capable in his own right or whatever, but it seems like a lot of his success has been due to that mm -hmm. political connection mm -hmm. in, in some way or another. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, it's interesting to me that, like, I I feel like one of the reasons why he wins ends up winning over Zarek is because while Zarek is sort of perceived as a political outsider, like Baltar's seems to be like perceived as like someone who's completely disconnected at all and that's what makes him mm -hmm. likable and and sure he's not really looking like he's kind of like talked into running and so he's like right. okay and then people like him for that. Right. Right. Well, and splitting that difference between the the you know the main maybe the what's seen as a mainstream politics of Roslyn with the kind of extremism of Zarek because yeah Baltar comes or at least he's seen as coming from outside the system but also without the extremity of you know tactics that or means that Zarek is willing to do that he's. He's coming from outside, and so maybe to a listener, it sounds more honest because it's not within this system, but also he's saying yeah. more sensible things about yeah. 
yeah. you know, like, or, and, and it kind of strikes home, like, this isn't, like, you know, my favorite episode of the season or anything, but, like, mm. um, it's it, kind of a workhorse episode. It, it's kind it? of like just it, fine, like, yeah, yeah, like, it's, it, it didn't strike me as, like, a really fantastic episode, but in talking about it, I'm kind of realizing, like, one thing it really nails is this idea of, like, all of these politicians, uh, their, the, the, their appearances being in some ways so different, if not opposite of actual reality, that appearances are everything in what they do. And how, yeah, Zarek is perceived as this radical outsider, and yet in some ways, like you said, he has a longer history with politics as an industry than Roslyn does. And yet it's her that gets, you know, tarred as the, you know, backstabbing career politician who doesn't care about the people she represents. Right. Um, and, you know, and Baltar, Which, and Baltar so, is seen sorry. as this, you know, uh, untainted, you know, guy yeah. who's just speaking the truth to power. And like you said how much of his personal success is due to his own connections, you know, right. in his, in his past and everything. And even like how charming and well-spoken and eloquent he is in that interview. And yet we know he's like a mess, <laughs> you know, in his, right. in his privacy, when nobody's looking, when there aren't cameras and microphones on him, he's, you know, all over the place he's kind of slightly going crazy sure. a little bit with his, you know, imaginary Cylon girlfriend, but to the yeah. appearance of the camera, he is, you know, uh, like everything you want, you know, your handsome, uh, well-spoken political hero to be. Yeah. Um, who also happens to be a genius scientist. Who also happens. Who's invented lots of things and won lots of yeah. scientific awards. Yeah. 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 And, and that's one aspect that, in some ways, they're very different. But one thing that, about Baltar that reminds me of Trump is that idea of the celebrity turned politician. Um, sure. And like, and again, like Zarek, that puts him as somebody who's outside the the corruption of the system. So that's part of it. But like, has somebody who just because he hasn't been a politician, he knows how to give an interview. He knows how to play the crowd. He knows how to tell people what they want to hear and, you know, and sound attractive to the people he's appealing to. So there's that kind of sure. showmanship aspect to it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But none no, of those I... things are really who those people are, you know, behind sure. a closed door, you know, or on the inside. Sure. Were you starting? To, Which, sorry, I feel like I didn't let you say something you were starting to say earlier. Oh, probably because <laughs> you interrupt me all the time. But um, no, I. Yeah, I mean, no, I I agree with pretty much all of that. Um, the, so with. With Roslyn, or sorry, no, with Baltar, um. The thing, the thing that I was thinking is that you have, as a choice, like, say, between him and Zarek, regardless of their actual connections, like, the perception of them being 
both outsiders. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, Zarek is a is an outsider and can shake things up, but like if you're comparing the two, like this is how I could see like like maybe moderate supporters of Zarek, if if there are such a thing, which it seems like maybe there are. Mm-hmm. Um, at least like on the in the quorum, right? Because those are the ones voting. This isn't right. a popular vote. This right. is a legislative right. vote. So, um, which is interesting too that that's. But I guess, I guess I don't actually know how like if a vice president is like killed or or otherwise removed from office. Like I don't know how a new vice president is picked without like another presidential mm. election in our own. So I I guess that could be perfectly legitimate for them to do, like sure. not to have a popular vote for the vice president. Sure. Um, anyway, so like, say you have like some fence sitters on the quorum, mm-hmm. you know, and like maybe they see Gray as, you know, uh, what's his name? Wallace Gray, mm-hmm. right? As like the, the Roslyn pick, you know, he would be a yes man, mm-hmm. you know, this and that. You don't necessarily want that person in. And so... You're going to go with Zarek just because you think Zarek could help keep Roslyn in line mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and then suddenly this new option, Baltar, comes up. And you're looking at two of them and you're saying, well, they're both outside the system, mm-hmm. you know, from outside the system. And, and oh, by the way, like, Baltar has already seconded a motion that Roslyn clearly didn't want mm-hmm. by even allowing, you know... Right for a VP to be voted. Right, so it's not just a so, toady. So he's yeah. willing to, like, stand up. And whereas Zarek is a destroyer, right, his his primary way of getting things done is to blow buildings up and that kind of stuff, Baltar is a builder. Mm-hmm. Like, he's a scientific person, and, like, the general populace doesn't know about the accusations right. of him, right. you know, with regard to... Which, you know, even, like, Adama and them, like, they now know that, like... Six is a, you know, the, right. the, what was her name? Shelly, right. you know, right. is a Cylon right. and that like she was lying and that Baltar right. really wasn't. In, right. So know, even Bald if you have there. heard the rumors so, of the accusations, he's been exonerated. He's and, been exonerated and, and, and put on that and pedestal. He's since yeah. built a Cylon detector. Right. Like, so he's, he's our savior. Protect them. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, like, there's all these things where, like, yeah. like if, if you have two political outsiders, Baltar is like almost clearly the better choice mm-hmm. because, you know, where Zarek destroys things, Baltar helps build things and, and is more likely to like be good for society than, mm-hmm. you know, to tear it apart kind of thing. So if you are that fence sitter, yeah. which clearly there must have been one, right? Because it came down to the last vote. Like that seems to me to be the thing that would sort of push you over yeah. into voting for Baltar rather yeah. than Zarek. Whereas you might not have been willing, like you might have, been more willing to say, fine, let's burn it all down with right. Derek. Right. <laughs> you know, right. if rather than keep the old way of doing things. Right. Um, right. Although, speaking of the old way of doing things, I, before we move on to like assassination plot, mm-hmm. which we probably won't have to talk about as much because I feel like the political stuff is more the highlight of the episode. Sure. Um, speaking of like the old way of doing things, though, like I do feel like uh, Zarek has some good points about that although i'm not like i'm i'm pretty libertarian i'm not condoning like you know bernie style communist or socialist you know whatever you know that zarek sort of spouts but i do agree that like 
it's probably time to look at different ways of doing things mm -hmm. because even just within this episode, you have a situation where you have, um, you know, equal weight distributed among the colonies. Now we don't, we don't know what the makeup of the fleet is, but it seems like, like, but we get hints, right. About like some, some people need, you know, you know, some people, some ships, that are represented by certain representatives have more people on them, or there are more ships under, you know, certain colonial representatives or whatever. Right. So even though you have like the 12 colonies represented here, they're not representing like equal numbers of people within the fleet. Right. Um, and, and we don't know, is that even proportional to what the actual planets were like, mm -hmm. You know, the planets probably didn't have exactly the same population. So that might have already been something that worked out. But how does that spread out now? Like, does it make more sense to, like, do some, like, remapping of the districts, you know, so to speak? Um, right. So that, like, you know, there's a different weighting or a different, like, like the fact that you're from Geminon does that even matter anymore? Cause Gemini's gone mm -hmm. to you. Anyway, like the planet. So it's not like Alderaan where it was like blown up, right. but like it's Cylon infested. Nobody's there anymore. Right. Like there's no, no way that like you would be able to go back there. So there's, right. does the fact that you are Geminonian, right? Like even matter at this point? Like, is there a different way? Like, should you be splitting this up? Like, like, should there be, I don't know if there's, like, 50 ships in the fleet, should, like, each ship get a representative? Or should there be, right. should it be more, like, population-based, like, one out of every 1,000 people has a representative or something like that? Right. Um, right. You know, so, like, like I feel like there's those sorts of proposals that, like, not quite turning it into, like, the socialist utopia that Zarek and Bernie would want, mm -hmm. um, but that would be more democratic certainly than this old way of doing like planet based things when like you're not dealing in planets anymore it's a it's an outmoded currency at this point right right um and there's probably like other examples that we could talk about of that sort of thing but um you know i just feel like like you know again like like the same thing with like like does the like okay they're upholding the colonial charter or the colonial whatever it's called but like is does that make sense should you have a new like charter or a new constitution or something you know to fit this new thing that you're doing now which is right. a loose federation of ships really right um at this point so no and that's always the balance with Sarek is putting enough um good points in his arguments to make him still persuasive you know, sure. um, to make him not just seem like the guy who wants to burn the world down, but he wants to present himself as a builder, not a destroyer, you know, like a builder of something new. And maybe we have to burn the old world down first in order to rebuild. But at least his presentation is one of, yeah, like, let's... Um, you know, throw out these things which are not relevant to our situation anymore. Um, which, you know, can be true enough in, you know, the real political world, but then I think even more so when 
your society is literally gone. And so, you know, they're in that very extreme position of, yeah, money has no value. Um, you know, work means something different now. You know, having a job means something different now than it used to. Um, and, you know, whether or not anybody, like you, you, that, like he says, that requires a new way of thinking because all the rules have changed. Um, and, you know, I think they may disagree about how to think differently about those things, but it's quite clear that you have to think differently. And like, that's kind of the truth that's embedded in what he's saying. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, before we move on to the assassination plot, I do want to um, talk for at least a minute or two about Rosalind's um, decision to uh, ditch her guy Gray and go for Baltar. Um, yeah, because which definitely puts her in the like even though even as I was saying like she actually doesn't have that deep of a political history. Mm -hmm. Like her actions definitely are of that same mm -hmm. ilk. Right. Maybe that's where you're going. Sorry. No, I'm that's kind of what, what, that's kind of what Gray says is, you know, he's yeah. sort of disappointed by the, you know, politicking that, that she shows there. Um, yeah. And kind of what I wanted to point out is, you know, it's what makes that even more of like a kind of hawkish move is, you know, it's only what a couple episodes ago that when Baltar gets accused and then publicly exonerated, you know, she says to him, I know you were involved somehow. And, you know, like, I feel like they haven't right. interacted much since then, but I believe her in the sense that, I don't think she's forgotten that. And so, you know, when she says to Adama, you know, the better the devil, you know. Um, and I think she's she's thinking yeah. of this as this is a humanity is on the line here. I think she really believes, you know, if Zarek is in power, this could be the end of he could take everyone down with him. And so she's certainly sure. thinking of herself as saving you know the fate of humanity is on who becomes vice president in this situation so i'm not saying she doesn't have motivation but um but that's quite a deal with the devil because she's pretty convinced that baltar you know has something to do with the original attack on you know on the colonies so like yeah. i just want to put that if that's a deal with the devil, I want to put that in perspective because for her, those are two, those are probably the two biggest devils in the fleet. And, but right. she is, you know, her opposition to Zarek is strong enough that she's willing to make a deal with devil number two. Like mm -hmm. at least the only thing Baltar has going for her, the, for him is that at least she's convinced that Zarek is a terrorist, you know, <laughs> whereas maybe Baltar has that, slight margin of doubt which puts him slightly yeah. in her favor maybe he's just he's just incompetent he, or he's just he's almost <laughs> he's confident. almost certainly a terrorist whereas Zarek has actually like we have documented evidence of him blowing up buildings you know whereas she can't prove that Baltar ever did that on purpose but but she's sure. at least not 
ignorant of that possibility. So just kind of want to put like, I think because it doesn't ever get brought up, I think it's easy to forget what a big decision that is for her yeah. of all people, you know? Um, yeah. No, that's a good point. Definitely a good point. All right. So um, we should move on to the assassination plot, at least talk a little bit about it, because uh, talk about like there's the there's all the political stuff like this the political stuff is all the public stuff mm -hmm. right and then you have like all the behind the scenes stuff or at least most most of the political stuff is public mm -hmm. you get some behind the scenes stuff there but um but then you have this whole like assassination plot going on sort of in the background and like i know like it wasn't until the second time you know till i rewatched it that like, I mean, I did see, like, the whole, like, the guy carrying the briefcase through or whatever. But, like, for some reason, it wasn't, I, I didn't remember the first time watching through, like, this is what's going on. So, until the second time I watched it, I'm like, oh, wow, we're we're literally seeing, like, this whole, like, briefcase being carried, like, mm. through, you know, through the scanner and, like, into the crowd. And, like, mm -hmm. there's the moment where, like, the valence guy stops and talks with grimes or like or they kind of smile i don't even remember if they say anything to each other but they just sort of like smile at each other and then like grimes goes off and like does his like big bombastic like mm -hmm. you know uh confrontational you know stuff with people so like one thing that i was thinking of through this whole episode the second time i watched it was does valence know he's gonna die mm -hmm. like because I, I honestly forget how this all shakes out or if we even get like an answer later in the series. Um, right. About like whether, about what exactly happened. Because that's, that's the question that Zarek leaves hanging at the end is, you know, I didn't, I didn't kill him. Mm -hmm. So who did? Mm -hmm. And there's kind of two questions there, right? So the, the, there's the who did, mm -hmm. but there's also the, is Zarek actually telling the truth? Right, right. Question. Right. So, um, you know, you, you don't necessarily know. So if Zarek isn't telling the truth, that means he knew someone was going to kill Valence. Mm -hmm. Which brings up the question, did Valence know? Mm -hmm. And if so, like, how big of a kook was he really? Like, because, like, mm. like, is this basically like a suicide mission mm -hmm. from the beginning? Um, which, you know, you, like, it's not a suicide bombing, but, you know, when you think of, like, like, you think of, like, extremists as the ones who are willing to, like, put their lives up for, you know, that sort of yeah. political gain, you know, um, and, and to what end? To frame someone? If so, who are they trying to frame? You know, Roslyn, perhaps, or someone else? Like, it's not really clear. Mm -hmm. Um so anyway, so like those are all sort of the things with Valence that you have to know. But then, of course, you have Grimes, too. So like clearly Grimes and Valence are, are in on it, mm -hmm. right? Like because they have like the moment where they're smiling. And so you realize like a lot of what Grimes does is it's orchestration. It's not like he seems like big brutish guy who just has a bad temper. Mm -hmm. 
but that's all theater, right? Right. As much as much as like the political stuff is theater mm-hmm. in a way, and so, so you have to wonder too, like, does he know Valence is the one who dies? Is he the one who kills Valence? Like, right. does, is he the one who ultimately? I mean, probably not, because like I think don't they take him back to the Galactica? So maybe it's not Grimes, but like. If so, then, like, is he in connection with someone else or who else is is there? Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, if he know, like, does he know that Valence is going to die as well? And, and, and just becomes a question of, like, you know, how, how willing are these people to, like, go through with this, right. you know, thing to, to do what? We still don't know because, right. like, Zarek doesn't win the election. But this doesn't seem like it's about winning the election. It seems like it's about something else. Right. Like, it, 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 whether it's to discredit Roslyn in some way or, or to get someone else in trouble, we don't know at this point. Right, right. Or at least you might know. I don't remember at this point anyway. To be so. honest with you, I feel like these threads stay dangling from my memory. And if, I, yeah. and, and if I'm wrong about that, then I've forgotten. And, yeah, to be honest, I think it's the... If this, if there's something that I feel slightly distanced from in this episode, it's the, it's the, that whole assassination plot, and I think, I think that's part of it. Is I'm okay with open ended questions if I kind of feel like I have some understanding of what's going on, or like if we're leaving them open ended and we're gonna come back to it later. But I, I, I feel like we kind of are left dangling and never really. Um, understand and sometimes that's okay like i'm okay with say like there's a lot we never really found out about shelly godfrey you know but it's kind of like that's one person whereas i feel like there's a whole subplot here of like a political movement that i like don't know what's going on (laughs) right so i think it just confuses me a little bit and i'm left kind of feeling like not sure if i missed something or if if it was if I'm supposed to be confused and not sure who did what, I think it's just a little. Uh, it's a it's a few drafts away from being, a a good you know compelling storyline or something. Um, mm-hmm. Like I think confusion is okay when you're supposed to be confused, but I'm not sure to what extent I'm supposed to be confused by what all happens. Um, or maybe they meant to come back and explore this idea later. And I mean, obviously we come back to the political stuff, but um, I don't think we ever really get a handle on the relationship between Valance and Grimes and Zarek, if there is one. Um, I'm pretty sure not. And if I've forgotten, that's because it's not a memorable answer. (laughs) Right, because I've right. seen it before and not too long ago. So, if it was an important answer, I hope I would have remembered it. But, um, yeah. Um, I mean, the other thing too, which <clears throat> this doesn't answer the question of you know physically who actually killed Valence, but um, you know, there's also that convenience of uh what needs to happen for Baltar to win the vice presidency. And we've had this ongoing idea of the hand of God and how, you know, God (laughs) swoops in and clears paths for him where 
you know, all seemed lost and, you know, and things just sort of work out the way they should for his own purposes. So like, I mean, obviously as number six says, God works through other people, you know, and that doesn't answer the question of who actually did the killing. But, uh, I think that's at least part of it is, um, this whole desperation to name a, you know, a candidate that could beat Zarek so that he doesn't win, so that he doesn't assassinate her. Like this whole kind of, we have to make sure these things don't happen all culminates in now Baltar is, you know, vice president of humanity. Um, so there's like a kind of direct connection there, even though he has nothing to do with this whole like, you know, uh, assassination attempt and everything. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's weird though, because Zarek says he has nothing to do with it, but then he asks Ellen, where's Valance? So like, it's like, I don't know. Is he just lying? Is he, does he know Valance, but he still didn't kill him? Like, I, I don't know what I'm, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm supposed yeah. to think about any of that. So. Well, right. So like that's the point. I don't know. You're never really supposed to get a handle on his, whether he's telling the truth or not. Yeah. Um, yeah, because like, okay, so the thing between, the, uh, sorry, Zarek and Ellen, like, the the question that becomes in my mind is like, okay, did did Ellen do something? Like, did she convince someone to go do something? Like, is there more conversation between Zarek and Ellen that happens where they like say, okay hey, Ellen, can you go have Valence killed for me? Like, can you talk to someone? You know, and if so, like, how does Ellen convince someone to go do that? Who does she convince? Is it Ty? Is it another soldier? Is it, I mean, who else would be there, right? If it is on the Galactica. Like, right. so there's just like those questions of, like, there's, a, like, I can think of a lot of different ways it could work out. Mm -hmm. And maybe Ellen wasn't involved at all. Maybe Lee and Starbuck did it and are just pretending that they don't know who did it. Like, I don't necessarily think that's the case, but right. like, like we, we don't know. That's the whole point is that we don't see it. Mm -hmm. So we just like, so on the one hand, like clearly someone did it, but was it, was it Zarek directing it? Was it a military person directing it? Was it someone just, doing something from a, a political, not a political expediency, but like a, just, Hey, opportunity to kill a jerk, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know, like, yeah, like there's, there's plenty of ways that that could have happened, but like, I mean, some of which is limited to the fact that like, apparently it's only a few people, right. Who know right where he is, except that Ellen knows and they like the people in the room don't know that Ellen knows. Right. Right. Well, she, and um, she knows because Ty knows. Like that's the implication right. is who knows he's in there but us, plus Ellen three knows, Marines and Ty is one of those people. So. And, 
and one Ellen knows though the whole sh- you know sure loose lips and all that sure like yeah so yeah there's definitely that idea that like you know it, it, the information could spread pretty quickly but mm-hmm. anyway we just you know we don't know but but anyway so Zarek's question to uh Roslyn of who did it mm-hmm. is to me just simply to incite distrust mm. it it in fact it works right. or potentially could work the same as Leobin's question yeah. about or or implication that adama is yeah. a silent right um right here's something for you to and hey chew on. it could have been a cylon who did it not that right. Eric's in league with the cylons but it could have been no. something like that knowing that like this sort of thing would come up like us you know if say boomer right ran across this guy and she went into cylon mode and doesn't remember it later like they could have been like perfect opportunity like oh hey here's a political prisoner if i kill them then there's going to be lots of suspicion on one side or another mm-hmm. or maybe both and so i should do that mm-hmm. um or it suits cylon purposes to have roslyn and or baltar in office um, and so right. stopping this right. assassin is have, part of that, ensuring that that happens. It may have nothing to do with the guy himself. It may have everything right. to do with other stuff. Right, yeah. right. <clears throat> so. So, yeah, anyway, lots of lots of speculation. Like I said, I can think of lots of ways it might have happened. But I think that's kind of the point is that you can think so like you don't really know. And so that's what spreads the suspicion. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, from Zarek's part, anyway. Yeah. Yep, and and you can definitely see Zarek using whatever outcome happens. He will use to his own advantage and try to make it sound like you know it's like what he's one of those people that like whatever happens. Well, that was all part of the plan. You know, like you know, like he's always got sure. an answer for you know, and so. He'll claim credit for things if it suits him. He'll say, if I had nothing to do with it, if it suits him, you know, uh, if I can't get it Rosalind one way, I'll get it her this other way. Um, and he'll kind of just roll with the punches that that way. Yeah. So, All right. anything Same else way. about, I mean, we're kind of almost at our hour. Anything else about either the politics or the assassination plot that we haven't um, covered? No, I I don't think so. Um, I think we're good with all of that. Uh, I guess just need to sort of wrap up with Hilo and Sharon, mm-hmm. who um, we actually have a little bit more to talk about with them this time. Not a ton, but um, you get like Hilo doing some thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is this is uh you know jock pilot taking quite a long time to sort of think through implications type stuff not that Hilo's stupid or anything i actually like Hilo, but um like you know it's like after days it's not the quickest on the uptake yeah yeah after days and days of like wondering like why would someone help the cylons like he finally comes around and why would twins (laughs) help the cylons um, you know, it finally comes around to this idea that maybe the Cylons have been uh, 
doing like genetic experiments and stuff mm-hmm. and uh figures they must be cloning people and um right and so of and course it it, it kind of does remind you like the his in his in Hilo's defense how far outside the realm of possibility it is that there are these humanoid models because like you said, he's been thinking about it for days and days. And what he's come up with is that these are human clones. So like he, he's kind of edging right. towards the right answer, but still not there yet. Like the idea of a humanoid Cylon is not even conceivable yet at this point. Yeah. Um, not until he sees Sharon, another right. Sharon. Right. Um, yeah, and has his sort of flashback to every weird thing she's ever done. <laughs> right, you know, right. like suddenly recontextualized, yeah. everything falls into place. Yep, you know, um, but you also get like Sharon, um, like earlier before he realizes what's going on. Like you, you get her saying, "Well, maybe, maybe they're capable of." complex emotions and maybe even love and you know yeah. like all this stuff that like it's just like he's like nah they're toasty like, <laughs> totally totally just you know doesn't matter what form you take they're all Cylons mm-hmm. uh, whatnot. right and um, she kind of you know hints at even some uh you know excuses i guess i don't know if that's the right word for you know their behavior that they were misguided they were indoctrinated you know right you know so not just i'm capable of feeling things and emotion on a personal level but i'm you know she's kind of alluding to this idea of maybe rethinking things that she has believed in the past or actions that she's done um that she's now maybe thinking of as uh wrong and you know uh you know the regret sort of so not just like oh i can feel things and so i feel them for you but i was misguided in my larger you know actions towards the world and everything um yeah yeah Yep. And yeah, he he takes off, and that's sort of the end of, uh, you know, once he sort of has his realization, he runs away, and that's the end of the episode. So, um, you know, what? actually, one thing we didn't talk about, which doesn't really fit in with any of the plots, though, is mm-hmm. the uh, the 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 Lee and Starbuck, uh stuff going on here so you get like the the little (laughs) as i thought of it while watching the episode the the flirting and squirting uh (laughs) part um and then you get the uh you know the dancing at the end right your your bum knee looks good and and so does the other one um starbucks dances yeah yeah (laughs) right exactly just like what we could have called the up there's a missed opportunity for a title um Uh, yeah well Anyway, um, what flirting and squirting? <laughs> um, anyway, uh, that's that's a different movie for sure. Um, anyway, the the we should move on 
Yeah. Uh, just wanted to point out that they seem to be getting along much better than at other times. Yes. Um, yes. Um, anyway. Yeah, and the the flirting like that crosses the over from like playful brother and sister flirting with like you know playing with water hoses to like you know uh something different when you know when he kind of sees her cleaned up in her dress you know that's no longer a brother and sister kind of reaction so um right the flirtation even you know it's both are kind of flirtatious but in kind of you know slightly different ways like there's like a progression there Definitely. Anyway, we will leave that where it lies yeah. and should move on to uh, to Buffy. Buffy. So I want to yeah. start. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I want to start with kind of the bigger idea. Um, before we kind of jump into like the specifics of the plot, I want to start with this idea of magic having consequences which mm-hmm. we've you know brought up before but it's definitely kind sure. of front and center in this episode um mm-hmm. and um you know before we started recording you kind of said some of those consequences might be uh more immediate like what we see in this episode and some might be more long term so there's not even simply just a one-to-one correspondence of cause and effect, but there might be all of these ripples and, you know, dominoes that kind of go off later on that we don't even really know yet. Um, so we get like a, a very specific example here, but it's obviously the implication is, um, is larger than that. Um, and actually like before I talk about like the, the demon, in particular, there was one line which I don't know. This is totally s- speculative. This is going on into like headcanon territory where I don't know that there's a, <laughs> I don't know that sure. there's a, a right or a wrong or a provable or disprovable theory here. And I don't know if you'll agree with it or not. But um, when Willow is talking about, um, you know, you know, Spike that says there are always consequences, of course, and he's right. Um, but it's when Willow is talking about specifically how this demon gets created that they make here. Um, and um, it it just kind of struck me. Um, I wonder if potentially this could be like an origin story for demons, you know, like just kind of thinking like mm. they do a, a complex and, and powerful and dangerous piece of magic. And it's not cause it's significant that it's not just what they think at first, which is a hitchhiker that like something grabs on to Buffy and rides with her back into our world, but that this is created you know, a spirit that's created because of, you know, the magic that they did. Um, And it kind of made me wonder, huh, like, I wonder if that's how demons get born. (laughs) Like, you know, and maybe that's not the only way that demons get born or made, but I could, 
I could see when, a, when two witches really love yeah, each other, right. <laughs> and they do a really complex spell. Um, right? Yeah, that's how little. Like, how does the kids' book read? That's like that? how little demons get born. Um, and then you have to go kill your human host to make sure that you don't disappear. Um, so I just could see that being more than just, obviously it's not just this one instance. This isn't the first time this has ever happened, but like that could to me be like, you know, maybe the the big bang of the demons is like human, human beings, you know, messing around with powerful dark magic and maybe some of it is good and you know i say dark maybe some of the spells are good you know maybe it's all forms of magic but powerful enough that it brings these other spirits into being who then sort of go off and live their own lives and maybe find other ways to procreate in their own way and whatever um you know do more magic yeah there you go yeah it's like Um, dancing but for buffy um, right. So uh, I don't, so, you know, I don't know whether that's great theory. You know? <laughs> great theory. I I applaud it. I would I would say though that we've we've gotten we we've got other explanations before. Like mm-hmm. I think even way back in season one, right? We 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 hear about like the old ones, like like mm-hmm. very Lovecraftian. Mm-hmm demons who have been around since we you know long before humans okay you know okay um and that kind of thing so i i and not to mention that there's like other dimensions and things like this like sure like yes it appears that demons can be created this way like or at least certain types of demons Mm -hmm. it seems like but i wouldn't i wouldn't go so far as to say like it's the beginning of all right right demons just just based on other stuff that we've seen and and sort of heard about mm-hmm. um so <sighs> sorry sorry to burst your head cannon there I put but, a lot of thought into that no yeah. not really um mostly it uh, just, so mostly it just made me wonder like how how common is this <laughs> how many yeah. you know how, and, and maybe I mean, there's know, a name for it. There's a name for well, there, it, and and I think it does. A, it it does yeah. at least get at this idea of at least some of the the spirits and demons and and dangerous things in the world are you know directly consequent of human action, which may have been totally unrelated. You know, doing something which seems like you have to do it or it's a good idea or it won't have a bad effect or whatever. And then like Spike says, there's always, you know, a consequence. There's always a price to be paid. Um, yeah. Or a gift with purchase. Right. Or a gift with purchase. As Anya says, yeah. it, it's more, more like, um, yeah, right. Well, no. So, so definitely like that explanation that Willow gives is, you know, the world doesn't like you getting something for free. Um, and we asked for a huge gift. And, and so the world said, fine, but you have to take this too. Uh, you know, so it's definitely like even thinking back. So, okay. 
I want to go back and talk about a bunch of stuff. Okay. Um, <laughs> first of all, this isn't the first time we've seen like magic with consequences, right? right. Like think about even like back with like Xander and, um, you know, what, uh, what episode was it? The spell he did where like all the demon women came or all the women came yes. after him. Yes. Right. Like, um, yeah. you know, he tried to, tried to get, uh, bewitched, bothered and bewildered. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And, and so, which, you know, was way back in season two. Uh-huh. So like, you know, definitely there's this, I, there's been this idea, but that's more like, not so much it's more like, like a side effect. It has consequences, you know, or, but it's just like, you're not, that's more like ignorance. Like you right. don't understand the magic. So you don't know what it'll do. Right. It's not that like something bad happens because you did this. I mean, something bad did happen because you did that. But it's it's just that that's like simple ignorance. Mm-hmm. Um, compare that to like you have last season in season five where you have Tara right before Gloria sucks her brain out mm-hmm. uh, saying it scares me how good you're getting mm-hmm. right at magic mm-hmm. and like why would she be scared of that because Tara knows that there's consequences but but willow hasn't really experienced that at that point mm-hmm. like like again that's that's like somewhere in between right like ignorance and you should know better mm-hmm. like like willow should at this point understand that magic is powerful and and you get giles's warnings all along about the power of magic mm-hmm. And of course, knowing that he was Ripper, and mm-hmm. we we saw the consequences of his magic, right? Like with um, uh, 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 Ethan, right? And like the stuff that he did, and and came back. So anyway, like the the whole like what I the Igon mm-hmm. was that the demon or whatever that they had created that came back and like right right was was like from his Ripper days was like you know, something that had come back. So anyway, um, so like there, there is a pattern here. Yeah. And, and so the question of this episode, which is asked by multiple people. And so we should pay attention. to it. <laughs> um, first asked by Spike uh, is, or first sort of implied by Spike, I guess is, is whether or not Willow knew one that there would or potentially could be a consequence and two if she did know that did she know what it would be mm-hmm. um and then you know again based on the fact that you've been doing this now for like five years like like how how long can you plead can you realistically plead ignorance right. about the consequences of magic right. at this point um not to say that you're going to know every everything that happens but like you know i can i can know that like playing with matches is a bad idea without knowing exactly how hot the fire is going to burn right you know what i mean right. like like you don't necessarily need to know that that exactly what's going to happen to know that it's dangerous to do this thing and that right you know, bad things could happen right or she can they can know that something is going to happen and choose not to investigate what that might be you know right. like 
so like you said right like, like maybe there should have been some more study up front to say oh so back in the 16th century when they tried this this thing happened right Right. Maybe maybe we should just be prepared for that. Right. And so there might be some ignorance, but at what point is that intentional? You know, um, turning a blind eye to, you know, what you by now should know is, you know, going to happen one way or the other. Because, um, like, yeah, like you said, like Tara, you know, if Tara is worried about the consequences of Willow becoming so powerful and yet you know, it's Tara when Xander kind of brings, you know, Spike put that little bug in his ear and Xander brings it up to say, you know, did either of you know, or, you know, did Willow know this could happen? And Tara's, of course not, of course not. But like you said, it's Tara who's kind of said similar things about, you know, like you're getting really powerful and that can be a scary and, you know, unpredictable thing. So you know, at what point is that kind of being a little bit naive about, you know, uh, Willow or the magic that they're doing? Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that's kind of my reading it on it is like, did Willow or Tara know this would happen? No, but could they have known? Maybe <laughs> they could have, they could have maybe digged a little deeper and, yeah. and tried and, a little well, harder. And should they have? Right. Right. Like, like that's the, right. That's, I think the question that right. is, is implied, if not right. outright stated by Spike that, right. that like, there seems to be like, like Spike seems to be saying that's why nobody told him mm -hmm. because he would be the one of course to say no because mm -hmm. something could go wrong mm -hmm. and willow whether consciously or or maybe not quite consciously like it seems it seems like it it was a conscious decision mm. the question is you know how how much did she sort of allow herself to think of the possibility that buffy could come back right wrong or that something bad could happen right. and and that to spike is why he wasn't told about it right um, it's he seems pretty convinced that yeah it's one of those um better to ask for forgiveness than permission situations you know like yeah. from what from, from willow's, willow's perspective, perspective yeah like yeah. it's it's better for me to do it and then i'll say sorry if it goes wrong whereas if i tell them about it up front they might not let me do it um right. and that's not that's not what she wants so um you know whereas like that's exactly what dawn says is like you can't take her away now you know you can't th that's worse than not bringing her back at all you know right um right. you know it was terrible and sad what happened but you know they are on their way to making or at least Dawn is on her way to making some sort of peace with it. Um, whereas to have that dangled in front of her, that there's this possibility of return that she might lose it again is, you know, a worse consequence than even, you know, the first time around. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Um, 
playing with fire a little bit. And I mean, in terms of the actual demon that they create, you know, they get off easy. They don't, <laughs> they don't lose Buffy again. They don't, she doesn't come back wrong in the sense of, um, so fundamentally wrong that she has to be killed, you know, or, or stopped or anything like that. Um, like, obviously everything is all, is not quite all right, but she's not like, she doesn't come back, um, you know, some sort of like revenge goddess that needs to be now like, you know, opposed or something. Um, sure. So, or at least not yet. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to rule out the possibility. Um, but like, they, it, it's a fairly light consequence in the sense that, oh, it's a demon that we have to kill. Okay, <laughs> we can, we're all relieved that that's the only consequence. They can kind of handle that. Um, hmm. Or at least as far as the Scoobies are concerned, that's all it is. Um, and they kind of try to write it, play it off to Buffy that way as, um, you know, oh, just a demon, no big deal. You don't even have to worry about it. We'll take care of it. Easy. Um, you know, routine, same as every other day. Um, so they're not thinking of it in terms of those longer consequences yet, I think. So. Um, well, and also, so, you know, the consequence for Buffy. Yeah. Of being somewhere, like like they're only thinking like, and so maybe this is a good transition mm -hmm. into the Buffy stuff, because like the whole episode, it's all about how Buffy is being back affects everyone else, mm -hmm. and not her. Mm -hmm. And and so, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. Um, you know, magic having consequences, like. <clears throat> there's uh, you know there's the creation of the demon thing but for buffy it's like the worst consequence mm -hmm. <coughs> oh, sorry i don't know why i suddenly have a cough um yeah so yeah do you want to talk through that or did you have more to say about the magic and like the plot stuff um I think, I mean, I think that's kind of what I wanted. Like, I feel like the idea of it is more important than the actual demon itself and what it does. I mean, yeah. Yeah. some of the dialogue might be relevant as we go through the characters. Like, you know, as, I mean, it's kind of a creepy idea that it like possesses them and everything. Um, but like the things that it says are more dangerous than anything it actually does you know this idea of putting especially to Buffy you know putting things in her head about um you know her things she's already thinking really it's really just a reflection of what's going on inside of her of um you know you don't really belong here and yeah like you said they were thinking kind of about themselves like it wasn't as not that it wasn't about Buffy at all, but it's more about them needing her back and it having less to do about what she needed. And so sh yeah. her becoming like 
a little bit of a bystander in her own resurrection, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, you know, and some interesting stuff that it says to kind of connect back to Willow and Tara says some very interesting things to, to Willow and Tara, which Willow claims not to understand. You know, it talks about, you know, the, the blood on her hands. Did you slit its throat? All this stuff. And it's like, what was it talking about? I don't know. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. so Willow not being, <laughs> maybe the, maybe, yeah, like maybe the <laughs> innocent animal whose throat you cut, maybe. So Willow not being honest with Tara, you know, which, suggests to me that like if if those things it's saying are reflective of what Buffy already feels maybe those are reflective of what Willow feels you know so Willow you know maybe being uncomfortable with the things she did to perform the spell um mm -hmm. and it kind of maybe tapping into some sort of psychic inner thoughts going on um of the things that they're sort of struggling with so sure um but yeah i don't think i have much else to say about like the demon itself um no like once it sort of manifests and then it's just like a fight scene and then right right she kills it yeah um so, so just yeah but speaking of the possessions i did oh, yeah. i did just want to sort of mention um in in the uk mm -hmm. buffy aired on sky one mm -hmm. um which is you know a station over there or whatever sure. and uh uh apparently the anya scene where she's like cutting her own face mm -hmm. and stuff was too graphic so they they took that out when it, interesting when it aired there yeah huh. um so yeah i don't you know it seems pretty tame compared to some things that air these days. So, sure. um, yeah. you know, it, a different era, certainly, but yeah. um, it seems like, but uh, yeah, yeah. So just figured I'd mention that. Also, just on a production note, um, this is a Jane Espenson episode, mm. which is not like other Jane Espenson episodes. No, it doesn't feel uh, very Espensonian. Yeah, yeah. That's the right uh, adjective. Es, es, espony, espensonsy. Espensonsy. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I definitely tone wise, mm -hmm. uh, and and that may be, you know, um, again. So remember, Joss is like off writing the mu musical episode at this point, mm -hmm. um, but he did direct the story of Buffy coming back and direct I don't mean like directed the episode I mean like he you know said here's the story of Buffy coming yeah, back yeah, yeah. <laughs> um you know before before going off and doing that and a big component of it was she comes back from heaven like that mm -hmm. was like basically from the moment he says that he knew she was coming back to life yeah that that was his twist that he wanted that 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 she was coming back yeah from heaven and that it it would make her depressed um mm -hmm. so i feel like tonally to the story it's absolutely appropriate and i think just goes to show you know miss espenson's uh uh 
abilities, mm-hmm. you know, to like, I mean, maybe she prefers the uh, funny episodes and had, and, and there's a couple, you know, somewhat humorous lines in here or whatever, sure. but, but, you know, sure, sure. Can yeah. Write an episode that's gravitas and, and has, yeah. Uh, right. It's not the dark, comedy episode. Yeah. Even a little bit of dark humor, like with Don saying, I knew you were under the dirt somewhere there. Like, mm. and thinking like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, yeah, she was under the yeah. dirt, like literally. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, it, it's in there, but it's mm-hmm. like uncomfortable and like mm-hmm. appropriate to the tone of, I think, the episode and how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Like she definitely is capable of, and I think this is kind of the first one of hers that isn't structured as a comedy episode, you know, that I, I, I doubt there's a Jane Espenson script that doesn't have at least one funny line in it, but, but like that is not meant to be the kind of farcical fun episode, but this one, right. the first one that's not superstar or whatever. Yeah. You know, like. Yeah. Or, you know, band candy or something. This is like, right. um, the first one that is going for, yeah, not just, and not even just darkness or scariness, but like you said, that, that idea of depression, you know, the kind of um, numbness of Buffy in this episode um, mm-hmm. is definitely puts it on a slightly different level. Um, yeah. So uh, let's talk about Buffy because that, is a sucky revelation <laughs> to get to, you know, and you should, yeah. you should know it from Joss. Like that does sound like, like what can make this worse? <laughs> like, you know, right. what's worse than Buffy dying? Uh, her coming back to life from somewhere where she was happier, yeah. you know, um, and, and, and turning, like- turning what should be triumphant into tragedy. Um, yeah, and I like how he even sort of foreshadows it in the in the previous episode. Yeah, where where you get Buffy asking Is at the end hell? there, where where, where Don right yeah. Don's like begging her to talk. Yeah, Buffy says yeah. yeah. So yeah, so yeah. Uh, like, but you're thinking like, oh, that's just because she happened, you know, to come back when Sunnydale was being overrun by demons. So of course, like right. it would look like hell to anyone. Right. When in reality, it's like. No, she's comparing it to where she just has been. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, obviously, if you haven't watched the next episode before, you wouldn't know that revelation is sure, coming. So sure. um, it, it gives it a little bit different meaning when you go back and just are like, oh, wow. Like, yeah. Like, knowing where she just came from, it, this makes a lot more sense how she's acting. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, and, um, you know, towards the end when she's trying to uh, pull it together and make... This is kind of, I think, part of where the depression metaphor gets in because um, the kind of Stepford-y quality of the way she comes out, like, because she, she was kind of in her just her black funeral dress and her kind of wild hair. And then they kind of clean her up, but she's very 
just kind of practical and utilitarian, like just in like, you know, regular clothes, like just, you know, very simple, very plain, has her hair pulled back, looking just kind of like, all right, what do I need to do to get by? And then at the end, she kind of comes out in what you think of as normal Buffy, which is very feminine, you know, and like, you know, in her very kind of like flowy, you know, kind of girlish clothes and her hair is all done. And like, this should feel like the normal Buffy, but it like doesn't. It feels like Mm. it's a costume, you know, and it kind of goes along with the, you know, slightly forced smile and you know and she's making an effort to like make lunch for dawn you know to kind of you know but you get that all of this again buffy is the bystander in her own story this is all for the benefit of everybody else like to get back to the theater uh theme from bsg this is her putting on a little bit of a performance you know, because what she keeps hearing throughout, and it's well-intentioned, but what she keeps hearing throughout the episode is, we just want you to be happy. You know? Um, when are you going to be happy? You know, we're happy. Why aren't you happy? Um, and, you know, message received. And that's the, the show she puts on at the end, is that she's happy. And she's, you know... Uh, grateful and relieved and all these other things and not that she's not grateful for their good intentions you know like I don't think she uh you know hates them for what they did but you Mm. know is she really grateful no she was happier where she was and right she's devastated (laughs) to have been ripped out of it um Yeah. Well, and and also that idea of like, like not even that it was necessarily the feelings that she describes, right? To Spike, if we could jump to there for a minute, mm-hmm. um, it's not even that she describes a place where like what you know, like where where it was just everything was good and and true, but like. The way she says, she goes, I was warm and I was loved and I was finished, complete. So that's good. We all want to feel that way. Warm, loved, complete, finished. Mm -hmm. I don't understand about the alley dimensions, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, But she talks about also like that she was at peace. I knew that everyone I cared was all right. Mm -hmm. Cared about was all right. I knew it. Like, obviously that wasn't true. Because, like, they were down here on Earth trying to get her back because things were so sucky without her, mm. right? Like, like that. it wasn't that it was actually true. It's just that, like, she knew it. it's almost, you know, it, it's a, a happy drug in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's just that. But it did, that doesn't matter because it's what she knew. It's how she felt. Mm. That everyone was okay. That she was happy. She was warm. She was complete. Um, and that it didn't matter. Like the, nothing else, there was no time. There was no urgency about anything. Yeah. A- apparently no real, like even feeling or anything. Mm-hmm. Cause like now she's back and everything, which she says it's hard and bright and violent. Like, 
everything I feel that everything I touch, this is hell. Like, you know, again, paralleling what she asked on before. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's no, like to her, to compared to where she was, earth is a hell dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And then she says, just getting through the next moment, one after that, knowing what I've lost. Like even just, it's not like she can she can't distract herself from the knowledge she can't forget about where she was right. like that's the thing that seems to to be sort of nagging at her now not nagging but you know whatever the right word is for that you know that she can't she can't forget about being having been at whatever you know wherever she was whatever dimension or whatever place that she that she was mm-hmm. you know some higher plane or whatever um and now it's like everything tactile and every moment is just a reminder of that mm. so yeah anyway yeah and even though i didn't understand the full significance of it in the last episode that definitely struck me at the time where when she asks, is this hell, that notion that her experience of the world has become hellish to some extent that like, and that was, that's part of it is that idea of being finished and complete is that's what's heavenly to her, you know, is Mm. here. It's about um, having a job to do. And like, that's just beating her down, you know, and it's never, and, it's never finished. Right. Right. It's always, there's always more demons. There's always more death and loss and killing yeah. and all these things that are inescapable. And she thought she'd escaped it and she didn't, um, you know, and yeah, like I think she even said in the last one, like when she stood on that ledge and made the decision to jump the the completeness of that and kind of the clarity of knowing it was the right thing to do was satisfying and it's that idea mm-hmm. of all right now i'm back in the real world where i don't know anything <laughs> and like and yeah. that is the hellish experience of of that uncertainty which everybody feels but she's kind of crystallizing into like you know that's the kind of fantasy metaphor for like the human existence of you just have to sort of try to get through life not understanding almost anything (laughs) and it never really occurred to me before until you were just talking about that but yeah like like it makes you wonder if she if she hadn't had that moment of clarity at her death would her afterlife have been a different experience Mm. you know but but because like because things were so clear and she jumped and she knew that doing this was the right thing mm-hmm. and that's the moment where she died right like is that what sort of like colored her afterlife for her mm-hmm. like it just sort of like froze her in that moment forever yeah well until they pulled her back out of it right right hmm. it yeah it reminds me um of uh Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, you know, who like Hmm. part of the Stoppard play, um, part of that, you know, that suggestion that they relive their lives over and over whenever the play is performed, 
they're in the backstage trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And, you know, um, and that idea of, we have no idea what's going on. We don't know who we are, why we're here. We, we don't even really know which of us is which and or why the king and queen want us to do this stuff. But we're stumbling around trying to do the right thing and make decisions and stay alive. And inevitably we get killed. And then just as we kind of start to figure out what was going on, we die and then we do it all over again. <laughs> and like that kind mm -hmm. of like, you know, uh, you know, existential hell of that idea. Um, seems kind of what Buffy is going through is like, you know, I finally reached the place where I had things figured out and I was done. And now I realize, no, that was only sort of, uh, you know, one, one act. And now we're back for, you know, another act where I, again, don't know. It's not like she comes back with this divine knowledge of, the mysteries of the universe, you know, like that would be one thing yeah. if she came back, like as like a second coming, like I'm enlightened and I'm now like back in the world, but like understanding it on a new level. Like, I don't get that sense. Like now that mm. when she comes back, she's back in with the rest of us trying to figure out what's going on with incomplete information. Um, you know, otherwise, I don't think she would be having that, like, really depressive experience. And, like, she doesn't seem enlightened. Um, you know. Uh, yeah. It's kind of that sense of, I'm back, and I, I'm not quite sure that I know more now than I really did before. Um, she had her kind of moment of clarity, but now things are sort of murky all over again. Yeah, a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Um, and one of the interesting things about that, too, is the way that that puts her more in alignment with Spike than the rest of them, you know? So you yeah. get, I mean, he's the one who obviously has a different reaction to all this. You know, he's the one who's upset by her coming back, whereas everybody else, you know, is elated by it. Um, maybe with the exception of Anya. Yeah. Anya might be the one who, again, as an ex-demon, you know, these sure. ex-demons are a little bit more wise about these things than, uh, than all the yeah. humans, you know, who are being a bit naive. But... Um, yeah, but, although... Sorry, no, no, go ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say, like, this this may be a spike protest too much, uh, you know. No. It, episode two, because, yeah. it, like, like, while definitely he understands the, the problems and the potential for, you know, the magic repercussions or whatever... Uh, like you get the sense that everything Xander says when, uh, what is it exactly they says? Like, this you is know, the happiest moment of your existence. Yeah. Like, yeah. like look me in the eyes and tell me that when you saw Buffy alive, it wasn't the happiest moment of your entire existence. Like Spike doesn't really answer him. 
Yeah. And you get the sense that like Xander's exactly right. Like this yeah. is this is one of those moments where Xander's speaking completely from the gut and just like you know Xander speaking for himself. Which mm-hmm. is interesting with Anya right there too, but you know, that's fine. Like I mean, we know for Xander it's not at least anymore, you know, a romantic thing, mm-hmm. but it's you know, it's she's one of his best friends. And so, you know, that's right. what he's saying. But but he also knows viscerally that's exactly what Spike is thinking too. Yeah. You know? And I feel like kind of those things can both be true. Like I feel like Spike sure. can have and that's definitely I agree with you. Like it's not like it's not like Spike isn't uh happy that to have Buffy back or that he would ever do anything to change it now that it's happened. But like, I also feel like he can have those instinctual feelings while also being the only one who intellectually understands the gravity of what they're, what they've done, you know, at least at this point, like, like it's one of those moments where you can kind of have one half of your brain saying, this is a really bad idea. The other half saying, I don't care. <laughs> like, you know, it's done now. And, you know, uh, he's certainly not going to do anything about it. Uh, you know, let anything happen to her now that she is back. Um, but yeah, she, and I think obviously she senses that, which is why she keeps going back to him. And tells him the truth at the end when she doesn't tell the others. She tells the others what they need to hear um, or what they want to hear anyway. Um, you know, about the Dawn just says they just want to they just want you to be happy. That's what matters. So she goes in and I'm very happy. Thank you. Tells them exactly the things, all the things that Willow is saying to Tara. I, you know, why isn't she more grateful? Why isn't she more happy? You know. Um, those are all the things that Buffy says. And then privately to Spike, she can be honest because Spike is the only one who kind of has anything like an experience like hers, you know, um, he's, you know, he's woken up in a coffin before, you know, he's, he's died and come back. Um, and he's been, in his own variations of like hell and torment. So um, he's the only one who can kind of understand what she's going through. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Anything else about Buffy or Spike? Um, that we didn't cover. Um, I mean, there's this, it's kind of along those same lines, but there's also his, um, his kind of speech about, uh, you know, reliving every day what happened and kind of imagining him going back and doing things differently and his kind of regret about, you know, if I just done this, if I just done that, um, and that sure. looking after Dawn is his sort of atonement for that. Um, right. Which 
we know he's counting the days, right? So right. we know how many times right, right. this is this has been done. Right. Um, and the the question becomes is will he stop doing that even though she's back? Sure. Who knows? Um Yeah. Yeah, like it is kind of funny cuz like there are a few moments other than the moment where buff like Spike first sees Buffy coming down the stairs with Dawn. All of their everything together with them is just the two of them. Because like Spike immediately mm -hmm. sends Dawn to go get supplies to bandage Buffy up. Yeah. And then when the other Scoobies come in, he leaves immediately. Yeah. And then later in his crypt, she is out patrolling. Uh, but, you know, not really. And so <laughs> she winds up at his crypt mm -hmm. and they're alone. And then at the end, he's hiding outside in the shade, which it's not quite clear how he got there because of, like, he can't leave because of the sun, right? So maybe, like, he must have been there a while, <laughs> like, when the shadows were longer or something. Yeah. You know, to a point where he wouldn't have to be in the sun. Or, I mean, we've seen him, like, cover up before, like, right. with a blanket and stuff. You know, so, like, maybe there's a half-burnt blanket somewhere nearby that we just, you know, like, just, like, just off screen or something. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, which is how he got there. But anyway, so like, you know, then there's a conversation with them out there. So it's very much, uh, when, when it's Spike and Buffy, it's only Spike and Buffy. Mm -hmm. There's no group conversations here. Like, which again, not that it's the only time that they've ever had like alone conversations mm -hmm. before, but seems more intimate. Mm -hmm. maybe you know not not in a sexual way but just like in a you know in a more open like they're definitely both both of them are less uh uh defensive mm -hmm. and you know they're more sort of just saying what's really yeah what they're really thinking to each other no they're not uh, trading like insults the way they usually would, you know. Sure, or putting up fronts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like even when they've been on the same side before, that's usually how they talk. Is sort of sure. in a competitive kind of, you know, belligerent sort of way. Whereas that's totally there's none of that here. Um, right. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, and, and, you know, Buffy's line about, I can be alone with you here. <laughs> like, which he kind of, he almost takes as a, as one of her insults of like, oh, ha ha, when I don't really notice when you're here. So it's like being alone. But there's a compliment in there of, you know, she doesn't have to put up that effort and that front with him in the same way that she has been with the others. Um, mm. I can be alone, meaning like I can be myself. Um, so, yeah. 
Yeah. Anything else about um, Dawn? Um, obviously, yeah, she's happy to have Buffy back. And I mentioned, you know, how sort of upset she gets at the thought of losing Buffy all over again. Um, you know, at first, interesting kind of role reversal of Dawn being kind of the mom, you know, let me take her home. She washes her up. She gets her dressed, you know. Yeah. Um, and and Michelle Trachtenberg is now taller than Sarah Michelle. Right. Yeah, so there's yeah. even like, yeah. like there's a little bit of that going on. Like, yeah, she's a bit of a caretaker mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. Um and standing up to the rest of the Scoobies. Yeah. You know, to yeah. like say, hey, leave her alone. Right. And I love how they leave her alone. They're all like, yes, we should listen to what Buffy wants to say. And then they all just stare at her. Yeah, yeah. Um Okay, Willow and Tara. Um I mean I feel like we talked most of what's interesting about them, I think, is in relationship to the magic and the consequences and how much do or don't they know. Um, sure. And it's hard to tell because, like I pointed out, Willow is told things that by the demon that she claims to have no knowledge of. So how much can we even trust what Willow says about the magic? You know, mm -hmm. um, you know she's willing to... Uh, cover up certain things even to Tara um you know I don't sure. I, I don't think Willow like I believe Tara when she says she would never do anything to hurt anyone intentionally but you know right but you know we've seen her she's messing with some pretty powerful stuff and she's not always honest about it afterwards so um well and and even just thinking about the fact that Willow's the one who helped Dawn Mm -hmm. find the mm -hmm. the information about how to help how to bring Joyce back yep. right yep yep yeah and even yeah and even with Tara holding back those things you know they have that talk of Tara saying this is you know the safe room where you don't have to pretend right but that only goes so far you know Willow doesn't totally like she admits part of the way she gives like half truths like i'm not unworried mm. <laughs> but she still won't say i'm worried you know right. so there's still a holding back even from tara about you know giving her full honest you know feelings and everything um yeah. so i mean she's like buffy she's kind of pretending in a way too um yeah and yeah. little references in there to Giles, um, who we don't see, but apparently Willow talks to him. Right. Um, and he says he's coming back. He's still not in the credits, so I'll believe it when I see it. Um, but so he knows now, apparently, which is interesting. And... Uh, there were a lot of dear lords. Yes, and he, and, he we heard and him she clean could his, hear him. Yeah, yeah, clean his glasses. <laughs> he audibly cleaned his glasses. Um, you know, and you know, Buffy's saying 
that she misses him. Just like kind of it just pops out of her, you know, and Willow having to say like, well, you know, I realize I'm a poor substitute, but I'll like, you know, so Willow having stepped into that leadership role, but also so kind of stepping stepping up into Buffy's shoes, but also trying to step into Giles' shoes too. Like sure. Willow trying to be all things to all people. Um which is not always, you know, easy. Right. Yeah. Um and Willow, I mean, like we saw her right the beginning of of the first episode of the season, mm -hmm. which was last episode, but yeah. it was two episodes. Yes. Um, but at the beginning, right, we get the, uh, you know, again, we get like her standing on top of the mausoleum, mm -hmm. like psychically directing mm -hmm. everyone where to go. And then you get like Xander saying, well, who put you in charge? Well, you put her in charge. Remember, there was a plaque and there was like, we all took a vote on it and said that Willow should be the one in charge. Like, yeah, like, so she's still like, this is this is still Willow in charge. Yes. Like, yeah, Buffy being back. Hasn't like Buffy hasn't taken over. Right. You know, like she might in other situations and which is kind of interesting, like they haven't really let her take over mm -hmm. either. Like, you know, for whatever reason, like we don't really get an explanation, but it's, you know, maybe it's just like, okay, it it's clear she needs some time to adjust. So we're going to let her adjust. Mm -hmm. But Willow is, like you said, like you pointed out already, like Willow's the, the one sort of leading the charge on all this stuff. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, all the research, all the planning. All the direction yeah. is coming from her. All the magic, you know, and like it that the the gap between Willow and Tara getting more and more pronounced. Like I'm sure Tara is becoming more advanced, but it's clear I think that Willow is outpacing her. You know that like okay they go and do the spell together, but it's Willow that kind of gets sort of. I don't know what possessed by the light and her eyes go black again. And she says, you know, solid. And the thing becomes solid. Like, was that supposed to happen? I kind of get that Tara was kind of surprised. Like she didn't like, right. yes, this was the intended goal, but like Tara wasn't expecting that moment of power from Willow. So that was kind of a surprise. And it's, and it's, it's Willow that that happens to. It's not the pair of them, you know? Right. Um, right. Like, almost like she's impatient. Like, sure. this is taking too long. So now I'm, you know, just going to do it on my own. Right. Like, right. Like, it's, and she doesn't even need a spell. She just says to say a word. Right. Like, right. And, and like, what she wants to happen happens. Right. Right. Yeah, no more of this, like, sing-song rhyme. You know, it's like you say it and it comes into being. Um, is sort of the type of magic, you know. And she has either access to something or there's some facility within her that she has a capability that she has that Tara either doesn't or won't, you know, use um, or doesn't know how to. So... 
it's kind of putting her in, you know, a different league, I think. Is that's the impression anyway. Um, Xander and Anya. Yes. Xander, of course, thinks pizza's the solution. Yeah. Because he's obviously. the body. <laughs> right. Food. Comfort food. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you said, him saying to Spike, this is the happiest moment. Obviously, there's some truth to that for Xander, too. You know, he's that... You know, if if we go based on the Buffy episodes, he's also the heart. So there's that loyalty and, you know, that kind of down-to-earth loyalty that is always part of, uh, you know, his motivation for things. Um, like, he's not, he's not the planner that Willow is. He's not the one saying, we should do this magic and I'm going to figure out how. But he's happy about it once he sees Buffy there. Um, you know, like he says, that's the most important thing. And for him, that's, you know, having her back in the group is the most important goal. Right. Although you get the sense that like, you know, again, it's, it's, his words are focused on him, right? And, and the other Scoobies, not sure. on Buffy. But you do get the sense that like, he's he's thinking along those lines of now that you're back like you're better too like that's almost just like i think the part that that's like i think the others just all take it for granted like of course buffy's happy to be back yeah so we just need to let her know how happy we are that she's back mm -hmm. like like it's it, hands down like there's why would she not be happy that she's back right. like there's no reason right why that would be the case in their mind so right. yeah anyway um so yeah yeah but it's it's definitely yeah for him like you said it's all it's all about the pizzas and the the feel goods right like that's what he is right the body right and getting back to that normalcy you know now that you're right. back we can have pizza and be besties again like like things are going to be how they were um and you know it won't take too long and you'll see this is just as good as it ever was um yeah um yeah and anya like i i hadn't thought about that until we were talking about it earlier but as the ex-demon, she does kind of strike that midpoint between, you know, she doesn't quite go into the dire consequences the way Spike kind of starts to, um, but she's not like, uh, you know, missing Buffy to the extent that Willow and Xander are like as her best friends, like. You know, I think Anya is cares about Buffy and is happy to have her back on one level, but also as the ex-demon, there's that other level that understands things, I think, more than the others do. Like, there's just certain things that she knows because of who she is. So just like she knows what a demon hitchhiker is, you know, she's the one in some ways more perceptive than the others saying like, 
Like, I don't think she's really normal at all. And maybe this wasn't a good idea and we probably shouldn't have done it, you know? Um, You know, and you can't totally discount, like, she's right about a lot of those things. Like, um, you know, it turns out she's right that Buffy isn't normal. Um, Or at least, like, she's not unfunctional, but... Um, she's not the same old Buffy that she was before she left. Right. Yeah, and her, there is that kind of, the Jane Espenson sort of dark humor comes in a lot with Anya. Again, saying, trying to be sensitive and saying inappropriately insensitive things, like, you know, you are crazy from the hell. Like, that's supposed to be reassuring. Is like, oh, you think you're crazy? You really are. But, and then, oh, no, you're fine. <laughs> like, you know, realizing the faux pas a little too late, so. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, no, Anya's still trying to figure out how to yeah, be human. Yeah, Like, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um... Yeah. I think that so, covers everything I wanted to go over. Yeah. I I mean, we get this sort of bombshell at the end. Mm-hmm. And also like the plan that that she doesn't want the others to know. So Yeah. Um you know uh, how well keeping secrets <laughs> from people usually goes. Yeah. We can speculate about how this one might go, yeah. but um at least for now Spike is the only one well other than Buffy herself of course Mm -hmm. uh the only one who who knows where Buffy really was right um and and interesting that she does choose to lie to them about it Mm -hmm. because well I don't know I I guess what do you think about that choice like or did did you did you think anything about it like just from a perspective of like like she clearly has two things to do: tell them the truth, mm-hmm. or or just not, and let them think that yeah. they did a good. I mean, I guess I guess the third option would have been to say nothing, mm-hmm. like to just never thank them and never tell them the truth. Mm-hmm. But she she explicitly decides to lie to them. Right? And say, she you con- pulled me out she of hell. She constructs a lie. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I took it as that. Uh. To tell them, I think she can't, uh, of those options, I think it would be tough for her to to do the say nothing option because that's kind of her approach in this episode is to dodge the questions about how are you, um, what do you remember, and like, you know, what what was your experience, and... Do you remember what happened? Where were you? What like it's all these questions about like the, the subtext is like what was death like? <laughs> Can you tell right. us what your experience was? Was there a light and did you walk towards yeah. it? And, yeah. And 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 what do you you've been there tell us what it like this is what everybody wants to know really. Um sure. and so like what do you remember about like dying but also like where you've been? Like is there, you know, the the title is afterlife. Is there anything afterlife, you know? Um, and if so, what? And so 
she spends the whole episode like dodging those questions, just like not answering them. You know, she refuses or she answers like she changes the subject or she figures some vague way to go about it. And they keep asking and that's clearly not going to be satisfying. So I think she can't, she can't just not say anything. And I think, I think she chooses, this is another like self-sacrifice of she chooses to tell them what she thinks they need to hear because if she tells them the truth, it would crush them. You know, it's, I was in paradise and you put me back in hell, you know? So the thing that Willow was most afraid of, which is that they're abandoning her in some place of torment is now the thing that they're responsible for. You know, she was happy and now she's, you know, back miserable and, you know, traumatized and everything. Um, And she's too big of a person to do that. So she chooses to lie. Um, So that's kind of, that was my reading of kind of why she makes that decision. Cause you get Don who says, you know, now they can see you being happy. That's all they want, which you talked about, like sort of the step 40 moment there. Um, And, you know, but again, like, like this isn't the misery loves company answer right Mm -mm. because she could say well too bad they're not going to see me happy i'm not happy so they can be unhappy too they're the reason but she doesn't yeah (laughs) yeah 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 uh but she doesn't choose to do that so yeah i mean that not that like her friends being happy makes her happy because it clearly doesn't like she's still dissatisfied mm-hmm. and unhappy when she goes outside the spite, mm-hmm. even though she's now lied to her friends and made them happy. Right. But, but they're like, in order to, in order to be willing to make that sort of a lie, like there has to be some kind of reason why she would do that. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to lead to a specific answer. Cause I don't know myself. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I can guess, mm-hmm. but my guess would be, yeah, just that that there's something inside her that kind of like you were saying, like she she still values her friends mm-hmm. to some degree. And, and so she doesn't want even even her own unhappiness isn't enough to make her want to see her friends unhappy. She right. would rather kind of like she was happy in the lie that her friends were OK. Mm. She would rather them be happy in the lie that she's OK. Mm. I, de- I never thought of it in those sort of parallel terms before. Sure. But, um, that's kind of what happens. Like she gives them their own little slice of heaven mm-hmm. by acknowledging and uh, acknowledging that their first fear, their worst fears were true. Their first fears, their, their worst fears were true. Yeah. And that now she's in a better place yep. when the complete opposite is true, but it makes them happier and puts them in a better place now. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Anyway. Yep. So yeah. Sort of like Earth. All right. Oh, sorry. Sort of like Adama, like, nah, we need <laughs> we need to live for something, let it be Earth. We, like that yeah. that lie that the parent tells to Might as know, well have a goal of something. Yeah, like yeah. we literally cannot do it to these people to tell them the truth and this lie is gonna make them 
happier. So, yeah, but again, those things have consequences because they're not true. So, you know, like you said, how long do secrets in TV shows usually stay secrets? Usually not forever. So, um, you know, we'll have to see the consequences of that choice when uh, they come up. All right. Well, I think we've talked about that enough then. All right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, yeah. So we'll be back next week with uh, some more BSG and uh, next episode of Angel. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, the first part of the BSG season finale. Yeah. Part one. Already. Already. Yeah. Ooh. Yep. All right. Okay. Cool. See you then.